This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. I'm so excited to finally have this conversation with you because we talked back in March, at the beginning of March, in preparation for this talk. And then we were um, derailed. We were, everyone, the world was derailed and sidelined by uh, the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, And then 2020 proceeded to be, in my estimation, a combined epilogue and case study for the ideas that and experiences that you outline in your book, um, Hood Feminism Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. So just to start us off, there have been so many things that have happened in the last six or seven months since we were originally supposed to have this conversation. I mean, I feel like the world has changed so incredibly significantly. Um, Can you just like, you know, off the top of your head, I know it's not going to be exhaustive, but just um, tell me a couple of the standout events and experiences that seem to have punctuated just a few of the the things that you highlight in your book. So A, thank you for having me. And B, um, I jokingly, not so jokingly, refer to 2020 as the apocalypse movie that couldn't make up its mind. We have to choose a struggle. Choose your own apocalypse. I mean, and you have so many to choose from. I at this at this rate, I'm get, I'm betting on aliens. Aliens. Um. So I I should say this. It was actually really good that you canceled when you did because when I came home from New York, I was going to come from New York out to uh, the Bay. I had COVID. So I had COVID in, at the end of March. It's. My thyroid is a Rice Krispie treat now, but otherwise I'm fine. We're fine. Um, And so I think the thing that punctuated it for me is that 200,000 people have died. Millions more have been impacted. And this is just in the U.S. That's before we get to the rest of the world. Millions globally have been impacted, obviously. And I think the number is actually closing in on a billion, but I haven't looked at the numbers recently for the global population infection rate. And I've watched many other countries learn their lesson really early, right? They've been able to reduce the spread, do all of these things. And I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight something that happened today, as a matter of fact. A canvasser for a political party that is not one I subscribe to, we'll, we'll put it that way, we'll keep it cute, came to my door and in the process of my, why are you here? It dawned on me. He came without a mask. After all of this. Oh, my goodness. And so the things that stand out about this year for me have been, yes, obviously, the political ramifications of many things, the concerns we have about, you know, who's going to get that Supreme Court nod, um, but also unemployment, the lack of a financial plan that could have made, you know, there's all of this political stuff. 
And then there's also the personal. There's watching people be anti-vaxxers, people be angry about food stamps and all of these things. And I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines and going, this is how we got here. Like we, we, we aren't, this does not have to be an apocalypse, right? I make jokes, but this doesn't have to be an apocalypse. We are making choices as a society, specifically in American society, that hinge on the idea that we can bootstrap our way out of a pandemic. It's a lie. You can't. First of all, bootstraps don't do anything. You can't pull anything up by bootstraps except a boot, right? Even if you have straps on a boot, on your actual physical boot, you know what you can lift with it? The boot. That's what you can pick up. Nothing else. You can't even really pick up your foot with it. Um, and so for me, the biggest things have been watching people choose to ignore science, choose to ignore the financial impact. People still vociferously arguing against Black Lives Matter or insisting that things aren't that bad. You know, I saw this thing, uh, a guy made a video about how Black women weren't as likely to be killed by police. So it couldn't just be about race. He carefully stepped around the conversation about the second most common form of police brutality, which is sexual assault. And those numbers... Those numbers can tell you that it is in fact about race and that it is both for black and indigenous women in particularly that we are all in this together, in this struggle together, if you're talking about marginalized communities. Yeah. But we're the canaries in the proverbial coal mine, right? America gets a cold, black America gets the flu, is that, is that old saying? Well, really at this point, America gets the plague. The rest of us get what? And I've been watching, you know, not that I want to be watching. This is not a time when I want to be right. I enjoy being right, but not, not particularly. Not for this. Yeah. Right. But we're not learning. Holistically, as a culture, we're not learning. For some reason, we still resent the idea that poor people could be able to eat, that we could take care of our neighbors, right? People are watching the uh, eviction crisis sort of form. And they're very upset that they may make less money. But you know what you can't wrap yourself in um, when you when you cross over to wherever it is, your beliefs will take you those pieces of paper. And so for me this year, I'm right. This is bad. It could be better. But also we have a choice. We have to consistently choose what we're going to do. And it's, we can make people's days worse. We can make things harder or we could make things better. Wow. I mean, you, you have um, traversed so many different, you know, um, specific areas that you highlight in your book. But what I am struck with is just um, how we really need to focus in on humanity. Like that is the key right now. We've got to be able to um, just really figure out what it is that is preventing uh, folks from really being able to recognize humanity in all of its forms, regardless of whether or not it looks like you, you know, um, and how to extrapolate this um, sort of uh, need to prioritize the self and, and shifted towards prioritizing the collective because that's what we're really talking about here. Um, I was watching a, um, 
I don't know, maybe I was reading a, a news story and they were talking about um, someone at one of the Trump rallies who just wanted to say, hey, we even have make a great America great again masks. And he started getting booed, like almost like booed off the stage to where he couldn't even speak. And I, I, I just, I thought that was the strangest moment um, when I really saw how individualistic people are in their thinking. And that, yeah, go ahead. No, I was saying, I think part of it is that what we're sort of forgetting, hate is intoxicating. Anger is, is it's almost, you know, the, the, the chemicals that are released inside your body with rage, they are in a weird way, and I'm not saying this is a good way, but they are almost addictive, right? That surge of adrenaline, that righteous fury you sort of work yourself into when you're angry. It's not logical, right? A lot of what we're seeing at these rallies and a lot of these interactions, right? When someone can say, well, I'm going to call the cops because someone is barbecuing in a park. You're looking for a buzz that you get. Yes. You're not really using logic, right? Um, when people were talking about, you know, I saw the fires, and one of the fires was started because someone decided to use a pyrotechnic for their in order reveal. to do a gender reveal. Right. And one thing that happened during this time that we haven't seen each other is I'm six months pregnant now. <laughs> so, so I when think, I, I, Donna I saw that, cake. Dot, dot, <laughs> if you just have to do one, you don't really need to do one, but if you have to do one, just dot inside the cake. I, Listen, it's not even that serious. It's I wouldn't I would never. Well, first of all, I don't even believe in gender reveals. Like right. that's a whole other thing. But I mean, I just thought how selfish, how how you know, wholly individualistic um are we that we now, you know, this is is setting off fires and and affecting air quality and all of these things. And it and it really is um you know, just this this um, intense, and I like the way that you're putting this, and that speaks to my mind as a clinical psychologist. I'll just name it as dopamine because that's what it is. It's that dopamine hit that people get that instantly raises their, um, you know, neurochemical uh, internalized state, which when we when research is done on dopamine, it provides a similar kind of effect as cocaine. And we all know what happens when people use cocaine. They're just like making very irrational choices and, you know, um, often just making decisions that aren't fully thought through and then not only harm the self, but then tend to harm others. And that's mm -hmm. the biggest thing. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to do was just get down into a, a few of the um, bits of terminology that I think might be helpful for this conversation as we're, you know, continuing mm -hmm. to expand and fold in a lot of different, um, uh, not only topics that you cover in your book, but a lot of the current events that have happened and are continuing to happen in this moment. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is what and or who um, is included in your definition of hood. Now, I have a felt sense of that, being that that's where I'm from, but, <laughs> but I, I'd love for you to just um, delineate that a little bit. 
So largely, I am talking about marginalized communities, usually inner city, but it can also be the reservation. It can be, you know, um, there's certain parts, let's be honest here, there's certain parts of rural America that we would call the hood if it were set anywhere else, rural anywhere that we could call the hood. Um, you know, whether you're talking about the barrio, all of that, right? Because I'm going to put this out here. I know we construct drugs as being a problem in the inner city. Meth's not really being cooked in the inner city, kids. It's being cooked on farms in Ohio, right? In Indiana and Iowa and Idaho. So when we're talking about the hood, we're really talking about marginalized communities and various denominations. And I would include the idea that low-income white people live in the hood often. Um, it is just less likely because in America, race informs your access to the ladder of class and sometimes informs where you're born on that particular ladder. Um, but the hood is really that place that the rest of society says is less than, deserves less support, deserves less resources, right, right? Being from the hood is often seen as negative, yet if you've ever watched after a natural disaster, a hurricane, any of that, right? I know we like to present, I'm in the Midwest, right? So you'll see, oh, well, look at this farmer that went out to cut down the tree that fell on his neighbor's property. If you ever look at when a building collapses in the inner city, it's often young men and women of color, Black, Latino, Asian, they run toward that flame. They run toward that collapse. They start digging people out. No gloves, no masks, no prep, no nothing. Because ultimately, fundamentally, what you see in every marginalized community is that people who have less give more. They do more. People with more, oddly enough, often are loath to give up anything, right? When we're talking about privilege, this is not a finite pie. If you have slightly less, then the more than enough. That doesn't mean that you're going without food, shelter, clothing, education, medical care. It just means somebody else has enough and you have to make do with one less yacht, one less vacation, one less whatever, right? One less fancy bubble, maybe. Because largely, the other part of this is that when we get into the idea that resources are to be hoarded and this pie is finite and whatever, you'll see people argue against things like a living wage, right? These are the same people who are angry about um, public assistance. They, you know, if you can't feed them, don't breed them. You're starting to see those kinds of slogans again, welfare queen slogans again, which people are talking about unemployment and, you know, food insecurity. And the answer here, friends, most Americans are two paychecks away from being in that boat. Maybe you, maybe you personally could pull out four or five. But I've seen a lot of people say, well, for a rainy day, I have. How many rainy days do you think it takes before that backup is depleted, right? And sure, you might be living well below your means and you're that miser with $2 million tucked in the, under your mattress, but you're a rare person. Most people are paycheck to paycheck. And so when we're talking about this, we're really talking about people who think that they should have more than their neighbor because they should have more than their neighbor. That's, you know, what happens outside the hood. What you'll see inside the hood is a version of stone soup over and over again. People are watching each other's children. 
They're helping each other make it to the end of the month on a limited food stamp budget. You know, they've got some kind of trade of giving rides. I know in my case, I used to get my hair done in exchange for tutoring. Right? Those hidden economies, those barter systems are still sharing. Yeah, they're alive and well. They're still sharing. They're how people are making it. Yes. I was going to say those um, underground bartering systems are how uh, low-income communities survive. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're uh, really hitting on is this idea that when you have less, it fosters a sense of collectivism. Like everybody's in it. We're all in it together. We have to be in order to survive. Where on the other end of the spectrum, they don't necessarily, you know, folks in our- It's not even on the table. It's, it's not even on, because it's, it's exactly, it's competition. But more than any, uh, but, and I would also add that, um, because survival is not on the table, then everything turns inward towards the self. It's competition fueled by this false sense of scarcity, like mm-hmm. the scarcity mentality. I'm not, I'm not going to have enough if I share with you. So no, I'm absolutely not going to share with you. And the more they don't share, mm-hmm. the rougher it gets. Yeah. The worse it gets. Yeah. So... Because then what happens, unfortunately, is that when the time comes that they need, they've got no one to contact. There's nowhere to turn. Because they have, you know, essentially alienated all of the various connections that they could have had mm-hmm. in service of, you know, maintaining this staunch uh, individualism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have now working definition of the hood. Um, and so what I, I wanted to do was to, um, move into feminism and you, um, present lots of different ways of looking at it. Um, you know, womanism, which I, I, uh, have understood and studied and all of that black feminism comes in, into that conversation, Um, intersectional feminism comes into the conversation and then we have hood feminism and I'm just really interested in hearing from you like how hood feminism really starts to um, define itself within uh, you know those various categories Um, I'll just start by saying for me like as I started thinking about it I was like, there's something about um, hood, hood feminism that feels like there's a rawness that can sometimes be obscured within the terminology of intersectional. And I started to really appreciate that because I think it goes back to even your definition of, um, of the hood, which is really sort of this intersection of um, systemic oppression and economics that when those two come together and and systemic oppression can look like systemic racism, it can look like um, community violence. It can look like, you know, the war on, you know, just drug, Mm -hmm. all of the things. Right. But inside of that, when you, when you start to blend economics and um, economics and 
just systemic oppression together. And then you sort of marry that, you, you combine that with any other of the various parts of identity, it starts to look real, real different, especially when we are talking about feminism. Well, and one of the things about hood feminism is that sometimes the folks who don't have the right terms, who are going to make missteps, they're still the folks who are going to show up for you. And in my case, when this was first coming together, I had gotten a bunch of threats and they were significant and all of these things in response to me writing about a medically therapeutic abortion. And feminism said, well, let's put you on a stage. Let's get you to testify. Let's here's some more work for you to do. But it was women in the hood who may not have used the right words, who may have been really rough, but they were like, girl, you good. You got enough to eat. You got a place to stay. Right. My brother, my brother, my cousin, whoever, they're going to drive by. They're going to stop by. You know, there's a certain there was a, a woman in, I want to say, Queens, New York. She was being threatened by neighbors. She had tried all of the calling of the police and all of these things. But when her story went viral, it wasn't feminists that showed up necessarily. It was Crips. Right. Sometimes I know, and I'm, I'm not trying to defend because I know someone's going to have a whole, oh my God, criminals. But I'm going to point out that a lot of gang culture comes out of neighborhood self-defense. It doesn't mean it ended up there, but a lot of it comes out of neighborhoods that had been heavily oppressed. And we understand that when we're talking romantically about bootleggers or the Italian mob stories or whatever. We understand these concepts. And when it comes to other communities, we struggle with it. But every community has a right to some form of self-protection if they aren't getting protection from anywhere else. And so one of the things I think people don't understand when I'm talking about hood feminism, it's not that I don't expect people to learn or to be better as they go, but I want to leave space for people to make the journey. Yes. For, for people to not know all the right words, all the right theories, but still show up. Yes. How do we call people in instead of policing them? Right. And it's not to say there aren't people you have to set hard boundaries against, but there's a big gap between this person is directly a threat and this person used the wrong terminology. Like, I'd rather start with attempting to educate, not to say, because Lord knows if you read my tweets... I can get real spicy when it becomes clear that somebody ain't ain't here ain't here for good reason. Right. Yes. Absolutely. But I want people to think about: you don't start out knowing everything. You don't know the right. Everybody way. starts somewhere. Right. Yes. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive to be better. But I think people dismiss the hood and particularly women of color and, you know, and, and poor white women in the hood because of how they speak, because of presentation, because of respectability politics. I was going to head right there. Let's go there. <laughs> because I think um, that there is like within feminism, there is this way in which um, softness and politeness is sort of um, pedestalized. And um, often what it leads to is this, I, this is a term that the young people taught me, toxic positivity. And I was like, absolutely, there it is. 
toxic positivity, really connecting with um, respectability politics and making it so that, you know, if you don't look a certain way or you don't sound a certain way, you come in with your your baby hairs and your eyeliner to hear whatever. Now, now I can't talk to you because you're not on my level, you know, whatever. And so you well, and I, I think a lot when we're talking about that, about respectability, there's also a weird form of tone policing that isn't just how are you presenting physically, but it becomes, is your voice soft enough? Are you kind enough? Did you clap and have enough smiley emojis in whatever you said? And this comes up in, in academia a lot because when, and this is what I see and I'm having to constantly, you know, uh, have conversations with folks about presentations looking lots of different ways just because someone doesn't you know use the terminology that you're comfortable with doesn't mean that they were not saying something that was important and that you know professors can get caught in that too and then start to be punitive to students who you know come from a different culture where being strong in your presence, in your affect, in your words, is how you get through life. Like it's how you navigate the world. You know, this shows up, shows up in academia and workplaces and, you know, all of that. And so just really speaking to how the importance of noticing, like when it has sort of gone into that respectability politics. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and then, and that's the thing, because then when you get into that moment, you stop listening, right? And you are often not listening to someone's lived experience, right? So I'm watching people, especially right now, these long lines at food banks and all of these things, and people talking about how difficult it was to get unemployment claims and all these other things processed. And I'm in conversations about what forms they took with them to apply for things, right? And if they had talked to someone who had previously been poor, they would have known the entire complete list and packet and checklist to bring with them to speed this process up. But they don't. And they didn't either didn't know anyone or didn't listen to anyone. And, you know, I, I was having this conversation here recently with someone about the fact that I self-describe and I mean it. I'm not nice. I really am not a nice person. People think I'm a nice person because I'm not mean to them. But you've never given me a reason to be mean to you. So no, I'm not going to be mean. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to be a doormat if you give me a reason, right? And it feels like sometimes people see someone with the wrong presentation and then they expect them to be grateful to be in the presence of the academy of whoever. And when that's not what happens, because essentially what you're doing is being demeaning to someone, then they're upset that this person has responded poorly or responded in a way they feel is inappropriate. Well, you never offered them anything but conflict. You never offered them anything but disrespect. So you got what you gave, right? And they have often information you need. They know and do things that you do not. Right. And I I liken it to this. When people will say years ago, I worked at a university and I was in an elevator and a young uh, finance student 
said something really rude about plumbers, right? He was really upset because some guy they had gone to high school with is a plumber now and made the same money as a plumber he was planning to make with his degree. And I was trying. I promise y'all I was trying. But as he talked, I looked at him and I said, do you know how to fix the sink? Do you know how to make sure that septic water doesn't back up in your house? Do you know how to plumb a house, much less an entire building? Do you know how to make sure that it's carried away in a sanitary fashion so that disease doesn't spread, so that the smell doesn't... Like, and I was having a moment. I was having... I'm a Chicago girl. I was having a full working class girl moment in this elevator. I admit that. But also, I couldn't grasp in that particular this is getting on my nerves moment in this long slow elevator ride why he thought he deserved so much more money because he knew how to move money around because that's essentially what we're doing you know how you know how to play in the stock market you know how to gamble or invest or whatever tell someone where to put their money that's a skill i'm not saying it's not a skill but that skill is not more valuable than making sure we don't all get dysentery or cholera, right? Like these are these are different skill sets. And, you know, and we had what ended up being a relatively productive conversation because he had never thought about those things, but also he had clearly imbibed so heavily that he didn't think about, I use a toilet every single day. I use a sink, I use a shower. I am exposed to someone's work in this field all day. But I don't think it's important. Right. That there's a hierarchy of skill, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a contractor's daughter. <laughs> I'm not, I'm thinking about all of that <laughs> every moment of the day. But I love that you just, um, you know, took that moment to really help him um, start to think more critically about just the little er everyday average things that he's, he's doing. And um, yeah, just the ways that he's navigating the world. I'm not sure he called it help, but we'll go with them. We use I mean, you know, help. You call it that. <laughs> I helped someone think more critically. You probably write a mean resume. Girl. I used to be an HR person. So yes, I do. <laughs> Because I'm definitely going to use that. Okay. You, um, but really, that what you were doing is was engaging this person um, with questions of curiosity, which mm -hmm. we often talk about in the world of therapy when we're trying to get you know people to you know make some changes and things like that. Um, but I also really there was something about your talking about not being nice that struck a chord with me. Um, because I was raised by a woman who, um, my mother is, she's like, yeah, no, I'm not nice. <laughs> and I don't see any reason to be, I mean, and, and what's interesting is that she walked this really fine line because she was raised in a generation. And I think you sort of mentioned this in, mm -hmm. in your book, when you were talking about your grandmother, she's raised in a generation where women were expected to you know, present in this kind of soft, nice way. But then at the same time, my mother is a self-identified um, tomboy. 
And so she was just like, oh yeah, I used to love to fight <laughs> and would just go around to anybody. And she was sort of like the Robin Hood of that in her mm-hmm. neighborhood. Like if someone was, you know, being mean to an, uh, someone else, she would go and say, who do you want me to beat up? Is it that person? Is it that person? But I think that there was really this sense of justice around it and just saying, you know, nice is not always going to get me what I need. Mm-hmm. And so you had um, sort of traversed, I think, being raised by, by your grandmother who had, you know, some ideas about, um, I'll just say femininity. But then um, on the other end of the spectrum, to sort of broaden it and take it to um, a more social level, you know, this idea about um, superwoman and sort of a strong black woman. And then, so how do you find yourself like mediating these two, you know, poles while also like declaring your humanity and like fragility and vulnerability and all of that. Um, So I will say that my, Fragility and vulnerability are definitely an inside the house thing. Um, there are only a few people who ever get to see. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this that won't sound, but I'm just gonna say it. Yeah, I was like, well, we're um, talking about hood feminism. So right, like, like listen, look at like this is the thing. Um, I I tell people when necessary, I, I remind them that this voice that you hear, this is code switching. But I'm really from the hood. And if you want it, I got it. We can always get to it. So you decide who you want to meet. Because the real me in here, she don't sound like this, but she does talk with her hands. So you figure it out. And when we get to that point, I've seen people kind of, right? It's a surprise for them. Um, But I balance it that way because I've realized that the world does not have a lot of mercy or comfort or kindness for young black women. Doesn't have a lot of mercy or comfort or kindness for older black women. Doesn't have a lot of mercy, comfort or kindness for black people in general, right? And and when I say women, I don't just mean cis women, I mean trans women, I mean non-binary, I mean we are sometimes all we got, right? So if you're gender non-conforming, you're femme, whatever, you have whatever your community is but there's a reason the world keeps saying, well, black women are going to save us. We'll listen to black women. And then they want to make us the mules and the martyrs. And I think about that a lot. And then I decide sometimes on a case by case basis, where is this energy going and how much of it am I willing to expend? I am probably never going to fit into your mammy fantasies. If you're having one, if you think that I'm going to be warm, comforting, buzzing, now, even my kids would tell you my mother is loving, but Mm, no, that's not my mom. I, w- I was the one my kids would only call. They would tell people when they knew that the teacher was wrong. It was, oh, you can call my mom. Otherwise, they want them to call their daddy. I'm in trouble calling my daddy. You're in trouble. You call my mother. She's going to eat your head. I want to watch. <laughs> and I will have popcorn for this. Right. And my, like, my kid has and literally at one point walked in and sat down with a friend and was like this. <laughs> he was right. I was having a moment. Um, and so the balance I try to strike is what can I live with? When I look at myself in the mirror every day, what can I live with? And what I can live with is it. 
what I cannot live with, what I cannot abide, what I can't, that's, that's the rest of it. But I have given up on trying to fit into other people's boxes. I am sure literally right this minute, there's someone within the sound of my voice constructing a box in their head that they think I should fit in. I won't. I, I promise you I won't. I am an amorphous blob that grows and projects as necessary functionally, as are, frankly, most people of color, right? Because if we can't be chameleons, if we can't figure out how to code switch, how to fall back or push forward in a moment, we don't survive. Adaptability is really what we got. And I really love how it's always coming back to this survival piece. Survival is a religion. Absolutely. I'm going to say this. Survival is, for some people, survival is the only religion they'll ever know. Right? And I know how people are going to hear that. I'm not saying you have to be religious. I grew up in the church, but I'm not really religious. I'm agnostic-y something. I don't think about it a lot, not because I couldn't, but because I don't really care. Um, but I think that people need to understand that when your first priority has to be surviving to the next day, the next week, the next month, we then can't turn to people who are focused on survival and say, why aren't you thinking about these other things? Why aren't you thinking about these wants when your needs are unmet? And a lot of times when I'm talking to other young not even young, when I'm talking to other Black women, right? But if you talk to older Black women, they'll tell you in a minute. I stopped worrying about, insert the rest of this sentence here, right? They can tell you the day they stopped worrying. They can tell you the age, the moment, the year. The, the I have a name for it in my own life, which is not appropriate for this conversation, but it's the F at 40s. <laughs> right? Listen, I told somebody one day, I, I said, I looked out and the field was there. There was never a lot in that field, but it the day the bell rang and nothing else grew there, right? I don't have one to give you. So you can be mad about it. You can feel whatever you think. You should wish I was someone else, whatever. All of those things are your business. I have a saying, other people's opinions of me are none of my business. How you feel about whoever is your business. It's not necessarily their business. And and how different that is, how different that, that is than a lot of the ways that feminism tends to show up, you know, largely in mainstream society, that it's really focused on how other people are viewing them or me or whatever. And it's really not about that. It's It's about, and I love that you said this, what can I live with at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. You know, and can I look myself in the mirror and say, I did every single thing that I could and I left it all out on the floor and I am happy to bear whatever consequences come from this because I am standing in my truth. And that truth is, is sort of rooted in this idea of, communalism and collectivism mm -hmm. and like, you know, enough for everybody. Well, and I, I point out to people that if they need a selfish reason to want everyone to have enough, you want to end crime, make sure everyone has enough to eat and a safe place to live. 
you want um, more inventions, make sure everyone get an education, right? You want whatever, insert thing here, right? You want the flying car future. We don't get to the flying car future when we're still standing in a Jim Crow past. The flying car, Jetsons future that technology would, would like to give us, you know, self-driving cars and um, towers in the sky. You know, I have a conversation with a friend of mine about the Jetsons and how it's kind of a horrifying thing when you think about the fact that you never saw what was below the clouds. What you, that you never saw? What was below the clouds. Oh, oh, wow. You never knew what was down on the ground. Wow. Right? I didn't even think about that. You, you knew that everything below the clouds was apparently bad. They didn't go there, but they never talk about it. Yeah. And I don't want to live in the future where I have to ignore the ground, where I have to stay perpetually in my shiny ivory tower, less something that I didn't take care of, right? It's kind of like building a house on a rotten foundation. Mm hmm Right? Because if my house is beautiful and shining, but it's also sinking, what difference does it make that I've built this beautiful, ornate home? The ground under it is crumbling, or it's filled with lead, or radioactive, or whatever, right? And so when we're talking about mainstream feminism, a lot of times the focus is on how far up can I get? How could I get to be the CEO, whatever, right? And there's nothing wrong in theory with wanting power. But the question is, what are you going to do with the power once you have it? And who did you leave behind? Well, and that's the thing, because if you got all this power, A, how did you get it? Right? How did you get it? And then B, what are you doing with it? Because if you have the power to change the world for women, change the world for black people, whatever, and instead of using it to do that, you decide to use it to enrich yourself, to enrich your cronies, whatever. And, and then enrich isn't even necessarily just about money. Let's just say you're hoarding the power, you're hoarding the resources in whatever way works for you as an analogy. You didn't fix any problems and you create, you just added to the problem. And that bill comes due in so many ways. What is, we're seeing right now, I know we tend to blame what's sitting in the Oval Office and there are reasons for that, but we didn't get here in four years. We didn't get here in 40 years, right? We, we can trace a lot of these policies to literally, whether we're going to go with 16, 19 or earlier, and, and then after, right? And choices are made over, over and over again. And so then now that we're here and the bill is coming due, so to speak, we don't want to pay this bill, but some people want to keep adding to the tally. Yeah. I just, um, as you were talking about that rising and, you know, the, the, I, you know, this, this, this notion of, you know, who's, how did you get there? And, you know, mm -hmm. what are you going to do with it? When, once you have that power, I just think about, you know, um, the way that, uh, it's often mentioned in the black community about lifting as you climb. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I often think about this because um, the other thing that I know about that position 
is that it is lonely up there. It's lonely. You don't know who has your back. No one. You, you know, <laughs> and you've not opened the door wider for others to come through so that, you know, each level and each moment and each part of it can be enriched and expanded. And I feel like that's one of the offerings that hood feminism has is that it's really, you know, just going back to the collectivism, you know, you bring with you everybody. I'm, I'm bringing everybody. I, you know, we always say, oh, I got the hood on my back, you know, and it's, it's real. It's, it's like, how do you bring everyone with you so that they can all enjoy the fruits? Well, and not only that, not only the bringing everyone, but I want to eat. I'm going to want the cornbread, the buttermilk, all that. I'm going to want somebody that knows how to fry chicken. Um, I, I'm a black girl that can't really fry chicken. I'm just going to admit that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to want people to talk to. I'm going to want people who were there. Like, I'm going to want socially, emotionally, all of these things. And to be honest, when this goes back to the what you can live with, I never want to be the reason a kid is going hungry. I never want to be the reason that somebody is where I was. You know, um, I had a not so great first marriage and I remember what hunger and fear feel like, right? And no one, even if I don't like you, I don't want you to experience that, right? We cannot like each other from our separate spaces, but I think you have a right to be safe and warm and comfortable and your kids to be educated and all of those things. We just don't have to be friends. Yeah. Ooh. So we're, we've got about 10 minutes left here. And so I wanted to um, talk about a couple of other um, things. And I think I'm going to try and um, pull this next, the next, two into one. We'll see how I do. But um, one of the things that you mentioned and sort of uh, exploring your book is, um, you know, this idea of the damage that is done by people who celebrate Blackness and Black women's culture and fierceness, as long as it doesn't come from Black women. Uh, and in particular, poor Black women. And then I want to sort of, you know, just say there's that piece. And then sort of on the other side, this, this phenomenon that seems to be cropping up that I am quite frankly, like I'm puzzled and shocked in a lot of ways, but, and then not, um, you know, you've got the, the Karens and the Beckys and all of that, but then the white women who have been posing as women of color coming out the woodworks. Like, what gonna, is happening here? I'm going to hurt a bunch of people's feelings. I'm going to tell you that those white women are posing as women of color because they cannot succeed as white women. And they feel like if they can take advantage of colorism, they can compete with darker skinned black women with a, a leg up, so to speak. Because if you look at the ones that we have seen, mm -hmm. And then we look at the, you know, the prototypical white standard of beauty and so forth and so on. Physically, they are maybe not able to compete with the Beckys. We'll say Beckys. With the Beckys and the Heathers. Okay. And 
socially, they seem not to be great, even as they pretend to be black. But they tend to choose primarily places where they will not interact with a lot with other black people or where they can have some measure of power to drive black women out or to keep black women out. And it is because while people love black cool and black culture, they don't necessarily love black people, especially black women, because we require a lot, right? Not that we're a handful, not that we're too difficult, but we spend our entire lives hearing we have to do twice as much to get half as far. So we work at everything. And have really high expectations. Right. And we hold other people to the same standards, however unfair. Yes. Held um, to, to us. Right. So, so it's very difficult sometimes to look into the face of Black women who couldn't pass a paper bag test and think about how hard they had to work and what obstacles they had to overcome to sit at the same table as you. And sometimes it's almost more comforting to then take advantage of the one thing that, frankly, we can't access past a certain skin shade, which is colorism, right? This idea that lighter makes you better. Because at least of the ones that I have seen, and I've seen a couple, these are not convincing simulations. One girl's lips look like somebody just cut a hole in her face. I couldn't quite understand what had happened there that we fell for this. But then I realized that she had carefully chosen who she engaged with. She went for that loophole of you are color struck, as my granny would say, you are focused on lightness and proximity to whiteness. And so I'm going to cozy up to you and not to people who are connected culturally and socially. Right. And I'm going to do my best to alienate the ones who are anyone who might question me. Right. And, and those are usually the ones that are carrying the high standards, like, well, what's happening with you in the community and what are you doing um, to lift this right. time? And, you know, uh, why and they want the- they want a woman that is a darker complexion to have four degrees, coddle their egos, cook. There's some other things on this list that are unfit for it, but I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, And then they aren't up to the standard they're trying to set either. They don't necessarily have that same level of education, that same level of ability of doing things. All they have is that they would like that space to be occupied by someone that they feel is attainable. So there is that peg. There is also the peg that when you are talking about Karen's, Karen's also visually can't keep up with Becky and Heather, maybe don't feel like they can try and slide over, right? They're more obsessed with white supremacy than cool, than access to black cool. But Karen's want power and control they don't have at home, is my theory. It's a working theory, but I have never in my life seen so many people choose battles that are completely unnecessary. I mean... And the consequences are, right, the consequences are largely the same every time, as are the terrible apologies, right? So you do this thing where you decide that you're going to block, I saw a video recently, um, a woman tried to block a family from getting into their car 
because she decided they had stolen their own car or something like that. I was a little confused by the argument that was going on. And I know someone's going to say, well, maybe she was mentally ill. She didn't appear to be. She was just convinced the car belonged to her friend. The friend was not present. It was a bizarre moment where she was certain she was right. The cops come and she got arrested. But what was telling to me was that, you know, unlike, you know, Amy Cooper and others who call the police and whatever blackness, she just kept demanding that they wait for this friend, whoever the friend was, to arrive. Well, they call the police. They tell the cops in advance. There's a woman, white and a describer, and she's, you know, I could tell them you were black, blah, blah, blah. And I'm watching the whole thing. And the entire time I'm thinking, there is nothing else in your life that you have power over, control over. And you're offended that this, these, these people won't give you power and control, right? And it, it's happened to me. We had a Karen encounter. We were um, parked outside of our building. This is an apartment building we were living in. And we were taking stuff out of the car. So we were parked in the loading zone next to the building. She comes up and says, well, you can't park here. She didn't even live in our building. She was very upset when I told her to mind her business, but she wanted to feel like she, this is the dopamine hit. She wanted to feel like she had some power over someone. And I feel like that's the two sides of this coin is the power that, that tie these two sides together, right? I cannot get power. So I become a Karen, right? Or what power I have, I can exercise in the very Becky Heather kind of way. Um, for as long as I can through whatever means. But if these avenues aren't open to me, then I become, you know, uh, suddenly my great grandmother's a Cherokee princess. I am black on my dad's side or whatever. Like insert your fake ethnic identity here. Or you move a few hundred miles and you just tell everyone right? That one of your parents is not your parent. And then you invest heavily. I noticed this with several of the Jessica Krug and some of the others. They were trying very hard to police other people's identity, other people's blackness all the time because they were insecure or whatever, but also they were still looking for that rush, that dopamine rush of being a Karen would give them. Right. And I'll, I'm going to bring up Rachel Dolezal now. And I'm going to point out that Rachel Dolezal, while apparently committing um, some measure, she was charged with welfare fraud. She did absolutely nothing, this person who was supposedly on the side of Black people, to subvert the welfare queen stereotype. She made a point of going to court in full, not really Black Blackness. And in that, she behaved very much like the con artist that stereotype is based on, Linda Taylor who was, for the record, apparently a white woman. There is some question she may have been white and something else. But either way, she passed as a lot of different races because she was an accomplished con artist. She, that was really her story. She was a criminal. So one last question, right at the eight o'clock mark. This is sort of a fun question, a creative question. <laughs> um, if there was a soundtrack to go along with your book, what songs and artists would be on it? Um, okay. 
hold on because I actually have a playlist. Ah! <laughs> I'm not turning away from the camera to hurt anybody's feelings. I just need to go look at my playlist, y'all. Okay. Um, I will say I know for a fact, and people are going to laugh, um, but it would include Young Thugs uh, and, and Nicki Minaj, uh, anybody. Um, it would include DMX because I listened to a lot of DMX when I was going through my divorce. Say whatever else you want. And there's plenty to say to criticize that man. But a DMX song will get you hype on a bad day. Um, we have to have Jill Scott. Um, and I know there are probably reasons to criticize some of the things she said. Not unaware of that. But just saying soundtracks. I also listen to problematic music. Queen Latifah, you uh, and I, T.Y. Um, hold on. Oh, Salt and Pepper, because sometimes you just need the energy to get through the day. And I'm Push It is a classic. Yeah, talk to your mother about it. Uh, Beyonce, right? Like, Beyonce. Um, Rihanna. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm literally scrolling through this playlist. This playlist is really long. Okay. Don't judge me. Well, we'll we'll pause that the yes. scrolling through the playlist and get to some of the um, questions on the Q and A. Okay? okay. So the first one: Could you speak to refugee communities of color globally being included in this conversation and the Black Lives Movement in general? Um, so I'm going to say this, and I'm not at all an expert. But as America stares down the barrel of perhaps creating some internal refugees itself, again, um, because side note, the Great Migration is really sort of an internal refugee migration both times because people were escaping from violence in the South to the North because they thought they were going to a better life. The historian in me just had to say that because otherwise, I don't know, lightning strikes historians don't tell you that. I think at this point, and this is consistent actually, unfortunately, I know people will say that it is all capitalism, but I actually think in any structure, anti-Blackness is global. And that for communities, especially refugee and other marginalized communities, there is not a place where you are safe from anti-Blackness. I wish I could tell you that there was such a place, but even once you get to places that are theoretically for Black people, you always run the risk of colonialism, imperialism, other things impacting um, and internal conflicts, lack of resources, right? And so a lot of the conversation, unfortunately, has to center around the idea of combating anti-Blackness specifically, and then also combating xenophobia, homophobia, and all of the other isms that we talk about when we're talking about hate, because we're really rolling this clock back to the way that hate is addictive and the ways that even in terms of places where everybody is theoretically from the same background, right? And this is true, whether we're talking about civil wars in the US or in other countries, we have a problem where we, as a society, A, think, and this is a global thing, that resources are finite. We actually have enough food. We have enough to go around. We don't move it around well. And we start hoarding really weird things. And we don't think of wealth as hoarding. But I'm just going to point out to you that if someone had 
nine billion of anything else besides dollars, you would call it hoarding. One billion, really. So there are those things. And then there is the fact that as long as we say, oh, it's not race, it's insert class, insert gender, insert your it's, we are setting up this false dichotomy where these things are separate. I cannot take off being a woman any more than I can take off being black. And in fact, if you ask me identity, I would say black woman because I am both of them all the time. At the same time, they are not divisible in my person, right? And so that's, and the same can be true for any other identity related, whether you are black and a refugee, you are black and, and LGBTQIA, all of these things. And as long as we are not talking about racism as a global specific problem and about anti-blackness in particular, unfortunately, communities and their place are going to have to be, and this is going to sound twee, and I'm sorry in advance, that all Black lives matter. And until all Black lives matter, no Black lives matter enough. And that has to be the messaging in whether you're in the US, the UK, anywhere. Because otherwise, what tends to happen is that in a time of crisis, I'm going to point to the Windrush generation in the UK for this. In a time of crisis, places will say, come in, we want you, we want, we need you, we need people here, we have a place for you. And then when you have enough, and now I'm going to point to Tulsa and Windrush and other places, and you start to prosper because the anti-Blackness is never addressed, now that is seen as an attack on them. Right? And that is Tulsa, that is Rosewood, that is sending the Windrush generation back to the islands they left 40, 50 years ago with no warning. Whole communities are destroyed. Wealth is disrupted. Finances are disrupted. You will sometimes see in these conversations people saying that um, Black people don't build, don't try, don't work together. Right? There's a weird Hotepi strain of folks that'll say we don't invest in community. Actually... Largely, Black communities are among the few, us and sometimes Indigenous communities, where self-investment is punished. Where the building of banks or community wealth, Black Wall Street, right? The Red Summer of 1919, which is actually like about three years of violent attacks on, on not even wealthy, frankly, but just healthy Black communities, right? Right. Um, is really about the ways that anti-blackness has never been addressed historically, right? You have Central Park in New York. You have, I'm going to say it's Freedman's Village or something. I know there's a place in Nova Scotia where they, they did the same thing. Yes, in, in Canada. Like you pick a country, you pick your, 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 your people. And colorism is another thing that although we were talking about in the context of blackness here, that is also part of the scale. That means that whether you were talking about um, Asian communities that struggle with it or, or other communities that struggle with colorism, we have created this narrative globally that being of a darker skin tone is bad and that it says something about your character and who you are as a person and all of these other things. And then when we don't address it and that, because this is where I'm going to say it, that problem rises, right? So you're at the bottom of the scale because of your skin color. And then let's say all of the black people got up and left tomorrow. All of the black people, everyone darker than the paper bag, picked up and just left the planet, hopped on the nearest ship to Mars. It wouldn't fix the problem. It would just change the scale. Then it would be people who were the same color as a paper bag who were too dark. They leave. And you, you see what I'm saying? Like there's this just ongoing thing. And so for refugee communities, I wish I could tell you 
that there was some magic pill that would make this better or easier. Unfortunately, until we're all talking about any blackness and about hate consistently in every culture and why we're hoarding resources, I think we're just moving around who's most at risk, right? And we're, we're sort of shifting the, this group is facing this list of obstacles, that group, because no, no black community that I know of is healthy, thriving, and safe with no outside bigotry to face or internal bigotry to combat. I don't know of one. If you do, please tell me. I would like to go there. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, so we're going to move to the next question. Um, how can predominantly white women nonprofit organizations do more to impact the issues that are impacting marginalized communities that they volunteer in? So money, money goes a long way. Also, I know volunteerism is a thing, but you need to ask yourself if you're volunteering to actually help or you're volunteering for the rush of feeling good about yourself. And I'm not saying you can't do the right thing for the wrong reason, but the latter tends to lend itself to a refusal to listen and follow the lead of the people who will live with the consequences. And I always think in any situation where you want to help, you want to be whatever, if you're not going to have to live with the impact, you shouldn't have the mic. You should show up and do with the people who are going to have to live there after you leave, want you to do. That, that Those are my basic in a nutshell things. A, use that privilege in ways that you were asked to use it, right? Whether that is standing in the front line of the protest between the cops and the protesters, contributing to bail funds, um, speaking up when, you know, Bob and accounting is a creep, you know, pick your poison here. But don't assume that you get to be the star or the hero or that, Frankly, they're going to make you feel good about yourself. That's that's your own internal stuff to back. Don't bring your emotional needs to someone else to, to feed. Yeah. And and I would also add using your power and privilege to help with legislation. Mm-hmm. Like that's I think the piece that um, feels the most um, the the piece that doesn't get spoken enough or you know demonstrated enough. All of those boring bond meetings about school board funds and things like that. Um, Also, just going to say to the 53%, the house is on fire. Start putting the fire out. Right? Change how you vote. And I don't just mean at the four-year mark. I mean all the way down. Because your local elections are also very important. Your local bond issues about how schools get funded, about after-school programs, all of those things are all very important. Show up for those things. And, you know, this is really twee, but vote like Black people. Vote like Black women specifically. Yeah, yeah. Um, How do you balance recruiting people to the cause and meeting them where they're at versus the niceness and approachability? I don't recruit people. Um, I'm going to say this. I have a firm belief that if you need to be recruited, if you need to be wooed or talked into or cajoled into, you're not ready to do the thing that you say you want to do. Right? You 
are an adult for the most part. So you should be able to make a choice and you should be able to make that choice in the same way you would in your workplace, right? You go to your job and you don't like your coworker here. Doesn't stop you from going to your job or doing your job. You just don't like Carol, right? You go home and you tell somebody how Carol is a medium mean face who cooks fish in the microwave every three days and God, you can't stand her. But you still go to your job. And I feel like the idea that people need to be wooed into being decent human beings is fundamentally flawed because it sets up a dichotomy where it's always on the marginalized people to woo you, to cater to you, to make you feel, to center you. If they are the ones facing the violence, the poverty, the, all of these things that you say you want to help with, why do they need to woo you into doing the right thing? Why do they need to meet you where you are? You could just pay attention and learn, right? And I have seen teenagers, and I'm going to use TikTok as an example. I have seen teenagers on TikTok go transition. It's fascinating to me. Transition from I am raised in a conservative household and I believe all of the things that my people told me to, oh, wow, they were wrong. And this matters and this is important and all of these things. And I'm not even going to get into what it takes in my head to think about someone who was 14 and their whole life is sort of tied into what their parents want and need. And I'm going to point to Kellyanne Conway's daughter on this front. And to still say this is wrong. And then for an adult to say, well, why aren't you nicer to me? Why, why can't you be kinder and gentler with me so I want to be someone who isn't racist. I want to be someone that isn't a misogynist. I want to be someone that takes care of other human beings, basic needs in a meaningful way. We all learned in kindergarten how to do these things. And I feel like, honestly, you should be able and ready to do it without someone asking you to. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it does go back to the comment that you had made before about, um, you know, why a person might not be nice and approachable. I also want to um, just add in, like, let's just take a, a trauma-informed approach about all of this, you know, that if you are um, expecting to come into highly traumatized Black and Brown and communities of color that have constantly been, you know, um, just having darts thrown at every moment. There's a hypervigilance. There's a natural and um, meaningful hypervigilance that these folks have. If you're not ready to deal with the effects of trauma and the way that it, it, it permeates the community, then you're not ready to do the work. And I'm going to add on to that add on and point out that when we're talking about traumatized communities and I'm, I'm going to include poor white communities, all of these things. Yes. Yes. Um, sometimes you're looking at generations that have been taught by word and deed. And I know someone's going to say, well, my people weren't here for slavery or my people weren't here for, if your people got here after slavery, they got here in time to benefit from Jim Crow. I need you to put that down. They got here in time to benefit from Asian exclusion acts. They got here in time to benefit from the impact of um, how the Irish and other groups became white and some did not, right? And that wave was largely by choosing anti-Blackness and separating themselves from other workers. So the assimilation. 
Right. So if you are from a community that has done these things or is in the process of doing these things, and then you say, well, why doesn't anyone trust me? Why would they? Why would anyone be gung-ho for your theoretical help? You're going to have to show and prove. Trust is earned. Solidarity is definitely a two-way street. Wouldn't tell you it's not. But trust is earned. Trust isn't just given. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it is really that track record, I think, that uh, folks who are living in the hood really need to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I uh, teach in, in my group dynamics class is um, that when you come in and you're a group facilitator and you are um, an, a person who is outside of the culture and you are outside of the culture just by stepping into a group because usually mm-hmm. they've already formed, they know who they are, all of this, you have to begin by identifying yourself. You have to first show up and say, hi, this is who I am. So the niceness and approachability actually has to come from you, not the, not the group that you're walking into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the next question, if being angry has a dopamine hit and that's bad, how do you even that out with being a self-described not nice person? Me not being nice doesn't mean I'm angry all the time. I'm actually fairly laid back. I'm a little type A about certain things, but most things I don't really have an opinion on unless they require me to have an opinion. I don't think I know everything. I know it sounds like it, I don't. Um, but I'm calm and centered in my own little self. And I am compassionate. I can be kind, all of those things. Niceness is a thin veneer, frankly, of BS often over what your real opinion is. We we conflate niceness with being effective, with being kind, with being decent. And honestly, if you're giving someone what they need, they don't really care if you did it with a big enough smile, enough clan claps or whatever. That actually feels pretty condescending. I say that from experience. And I would rather be effective. I would rather be kind and not a problem unnecessarily to someone than necessarily be nice. Um, And I am off, I'm really honest, I'll tell you that I am not actually uh, a people person. I am someone who enjoys people in small doses, but the rest of the time I would rather be in my house because I'm technically an introvert. I fake being an extrovert on TV. Um, And as a result, the kindest thing I can do, the nicest thing I can do is recognize my own limits and not subject people to me when we have reached the boundaries of what Mickey has capability for. That also, however, means, let me be clear here, sometimes you need to be angry. Not that being angry is a thing you should seek out, but I am the person that my friends call when they are like, okay, I need a fighter, right? And I'm fine with that. I am, I am fine with that. That is a mutually agreed thing. I have friends I call and I need a, a Mickey to nice translator. And the reason I'm the one that they call is that even though I don't like fighting, I don't get off on the, the that particular dopamine hit, I'm willing to do it to get things done that need to be done. And sometimes, right, and sometimes being nice 
keeps things from getting done. It obfuscates the goal, right? We've got to go in this long, twisty way. I can come in and just say, A, B, C, D needs to happen. It needs to happen in this time in this way. Why? Because the law says, because the rules say, because reality is, you know, insert the sentence framing here. And people don't like it. People get so upset. But the nice person who talked to them before me, because I have friends sometimes who are very good at nice, they didn't listen to them. They didn't listen the first, second, fifth, twelfth time. People don't actually listen to nice. People want nice because it makes them feel better. People listen to blunt. People listen to direct. They're mad at the person who did it. That's why we have a don't shoot the messenger sort of phrasing, right? I'm the messenger who doesn't mind if you want to try to take a shot at me because I don't really care if you don't like me. But other people who care about whether or not you like them, I, I take the hit that they can't. And then you, you do the thing that they told you to do in the first place. And the funny thing is that we're saying the same thing, but you didn't listen till I yelled. And now you don't want to listen to me. So you go back to the person who was not blunt, but was nice. And now you're ready to listen to them. Right. And it really is, I think, just about setting some boundaries mm -hmm. about how you are going to be treated um, and then how you expect others to interact with you. Um, and, I, and I do agree that a lot of times, in most cases, directness works, you know, and it, mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily equate to not being a nice person. You're just saying this is the most direct route. And that's the one I'm going to take. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next question, uh, what inspired you to write Hood Feminism? And what do you hope this encourages readers to do? To be honest, as a Latinx, it has inspired and given me the courage to check the white women at work. It's so scary. I hope people will decide to do the right thing for their own self-preservation, if nothing else. I hope that people will come away from this book and think, I don't want to live in the future where people are going without unnecessarily. It's one thing if we're in the middle of a famine or something, not that those are ever necessary. I'm just going to say one more again, we have enough food. No one should be going without food or clean water in the world. Thank you. But I want people to come away and think about how they can do better, how they can contribute, how they can try to fix this, right? I'm 43 years old. I'm definitely not going to see this near utopia vision that I have where everybody has enough. But I hope that people will continue to work toward it. And I hope that feminism, which has built such a huge powerhouse of a framework in so many places, will work on these issues, these basic issues affecting so many women, because we would get further if we addressed the basic needs first. The reach for power and success and equality is great if we make sure that equity happens, if we make sure that we're including all of these concerns, if we do something to create a pathway so that people are not so busy struggling for survival, they can't work towards thriving. I want people to thrive. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so Mickey noted that all Black Lives Matter, which I totally agree with, is this emphasis on all intended to speak to anti-Black trans discrimination and continued misogyny within the Black community? 
If so, do you expect, expect Black Americans to increase advocacy efforts for complete inclusion, such as protection for disabled people, elderly, LGBTQ, and other marginalized groups? I would say yes. I would actually say it's not even all Black Americans. It's, it's Black American cisgendered men because Black American women, trans elders, so forth. All of those groups exist and have been working towards these things with each other and intercommingled, right? Um, what I expect to see happen, and it's not like this is just Black men. I expect this to come from mainstream white middle-class feminism. I expect it to come from all of us. Is for us to create a world in which we value life. Currently, unfortunately, in many places, and someone's going to say not the U.S., and I'm going to point to the stats on mass gun violence and stare at you until you stop talking when you say that. We don't really value human life. We don't really think of human life as being something that matters. And we especially don't think that Black lives matter. And we don't think that marginalized lives of marginalized people matter, especially if they are Black people who are, have other marginalizations. But it's not like it's just Black people. This is true for Indigenous communities. This is true for many Asian and Pacific Islander communities. We have a problem collectively in the world where we think of life as of some only some lives matter. And those lives that matter are often whiter, cisgendered, um, able-bodied, so forth, so on. Um, and there's a reason that I... I call it that way because one of the things that I notice when we're talking about um, transphobia in Black communities or um, any of the other isms, there's a weird dichotomy where we think that Black people are supposed to be so much better than every other group. And it's not that we can't do better. It's not even that we aren't doing better. It's just that we're taught to pathologize everything that comes out of Black communities as somehow being worse. And I, I bring this up because, you know, Matthew Shepard, Black people had nothing to do with that, right? Many of these crimes, many of these moments where the isms happen, they're happening in every community. We as a culture, right, a global culture, have a problem. And we have a serious problem with violence. In America, it gets worse because we really love guns more than we love human life. And somebody's going to get mad at me and I'm going to remind you that even though I like guns, I don't think guns belong on the streets or in schools. So you're going to talk to Jesus about what I think about your desire to carry all the time. He cares that you're upset. I don't. Um, actually, he might not either. But I think that every community could be doing better. I think every community could be doing more. I think that in general, stats show that cisgendered men are often sources of violence in various communities. And this is true of black cisgender men and white cisgender men and Asians. You, you, you get the theme here. And I want to see men show up. I want to see cisgendered men show up. And I want to see them show up, not just at the march or the protest, but talking to each other, teaching their sons not to be offenders, teaching Instead of this thing we do where we teach people who might be harmed to avoid being prey, we could teach people not to be predators, right? I want that cultural shift. And that doesn't mean that, listen, Black Americans could be doing better. We all could be doing better. But I don't want us to get into this trap where we say, well, this is a problem within, you know, all Black lives matter. This means that all Black Americans have to do X, Y, and Z before we can address this outside problem. 
Now, we could do that work inside, but there's a lot of work to do outside, too, at the same time. We can do all the work together as opposed to this weird, well, when violence stops in the Black community, then we'll talk about police brutality. How about both? How about we address both? Wild idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is one piece of advice you would give a 20-year-old young woman today? Um, how can I put this? Oh, dump them. I don't just mean the partner. I mean the parent, the person who is your friend or whatever. The person who doesn't mean you well, you know who they are because you have one in 20. A lot of us have one. I want you to spend less time worrying about what other people think of you and making other people happy and more time thinking about what would make you happy and what you want. And then the people who object to the thing that you want or they say that it doesn't serve their needs, I want you to dump them. I want you to look at them and tell them that they're not on your side, they're not on your team, they because they're not. And I want you to put them on the curb, chuck the deuces, right? And keep moving towards your goal because a lot of young women in particular are raised to please everyone but themselves. And then they are raised to put everyone else's needs above them. And then we have this awakening in our 30s. And it's an unnecessary awakening because if we had that same freedom from the beginning, we would have done more, been more, enjoyed more. Um, so you, you were saying whatever it is, dump those people, prioritize yourself. And then you said that there's an awakening that happens in the thirties. Right. It tends to be in the thirties, but really what happens is that we spend our twenties unlearning everything that led to our teens. Yeah. I don't want you to spend your twenties unlearning. I want you to start out your twenties telling people who don't mean you well, that they got to go and they might grow up and come back and be better or whatever. You can't worry about them. Right. And I say this, I was a family bad girl. I am the rogue. I am the one that still sometimes they about. I have a couple cousins who are good girls. Guess which one of us is happy? It's not it's not the ones who did everything everybody else said. And I don't say that to demean them. I love them. But I'm watching them go through this. And even though I'm fully supportive, I'm here for you, advice, whatever. In the back of my brain, I'm like, good God, you wasted a lot of time. A lot. And it's not a judgment of them. It's a judgment of, I used to feel bad that I wasn't better at doing the thing that they were doing. And I'm like, oh man, that was a lot of time to invest, a lot of energy, a lot of tiny boxes trying to fit yourself in. And there was no payoff for that? You did all of that. And now you got to start where I was anyway. Skip that stage. And I know some of you right now are thinking about that one friend or your mother or your sister or your cousin or your daddy or whoever. You may have several. Who every time they talk to you, you feel bad about yourself. And then you think they must say it because they love me. No, that's not why they say it. Even if that's what they tell themselves, even if that's what they tell you. They say it because they want you to be smaller so they can feel bigger. 
And the world is going to do enough chopping that trying to chop you down. You don't have to let people chop you down when you go home. I sound like everybody's old grandma. I know that. I love, but I, I love it. I mean, I think that's part of hood feminism. It's certainly where I, I learned the beginnings of it myself. You know, I, I needed those people to tell me. I needed those older women to just sit down and give me the truth about life and what it is. And it's just like, you, you got to make yourself happy first, you know, mm -hmm. and, and in doing that, um, you access um, a level of like internal joy that no one can take away from you. No one, it's not even questioned. Mm -hmm. And that then allows you to be open and receptive to all the others, right? We've been talking about the, all the isms. You can be open to all of those, you know, various diverse bodies and people and experiences because you're happy with yourself first. You know? Right. I like looking at this face in the mirror every day. I, I look at her and I like her and that's all I need. Yes. And it goes back to what you were saying before. Like, I have to be good with the decisions that I'm making. Like, I got to be able to come back home and look at myself in the mirror and say, I I'm okay with, you know, the thing that I said or did, um, or the, you know, however I handled that particular mm -hmm. situation or circumstance. So, um, I think this might be the final question. What keeps you hopeful and how do you keep going? Um, kids, oddly enough, teenagers, um, I'm going to point to, I guess they're Gen Z. I might be messing up, um, the, the generations, because I'm Gen X and I get confused with everybody after us. I'm old, judge me. But watching them wade in, and that so many of them are so fearless. They're so ready to just throw them hands and Aren't get out there. Aren't they amazing? And I think sometimes if we can buy you enough time, the kids are going to be okay. Right? And we're, we're trying. We're, we're trying. Well, I'm trying. And that's the other thing. Um, I have two kids and I want them to have a chance. And so the thing that keeps me going, aside from the fact that I kind of like, you know, existing, is that I want to give as many people a chance at having a great life as I can. If that's the only thing I do, this is, this is my final contribution to the world, is that people after me have a chance to experience all their dreams or as many of their dreams as they can. I'm good with it. There's a saying um, that I think comes from one of the spiritual communities that I've been a part of. And it says to have life and that more abundantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciate you and all of the wisdom that you shared tonight. Um, Miss Mickey, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, 
please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.